Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 116. Thank you for joining us. Today, our own Jordan Almanzar returns to discuss some of the writing he's been working on, and in particular, an upcoming series of articles which he's calling Things I Would Tell My Students. Stick around for the preview of these articles and other interesting conversations. We hope you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby Online and serve as the Alumni and Public Relations Director. Stephen, it's go time for the 22-23 school year. Can you believe it? That's come so quickly. We're just starting up school right now in our house Yeah. and have a about a week before I have to take my daughter back to college. So mm. yeah, summer went quickly. It really, it really did. It's, I don't even know how we got here. It has just gone so, so quickly. Well, we have Jordan back with us not too long ago. He was here leading a round table discussion on Kobe's Greek history, literature and philosophy offerings. That was episode 111, What Treasures Remain, which was part of our 2022 Kobe Cast convention. I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. It was great to hear Jordan and his scholarly element conversing with several Colby colleagues. He's back with Stephen and me to share some pedagogical words of wisdom. Guten Tag, Jordan. Guten Tag. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's always good to see you. Have you in the mix here, converse with both you guys. It's always a pleasure. You've been busy writing, haven't you? Had a busy summer and beyond. Want to tell us what you're working on? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm working on several things. Um, I, and I'll tell you today, I finally got a review that was due about this time last year <laughs> sent to uh, the publisher. So it's a review of a huge book that uh, 1,400 pages, very technical, very dense, dense footnoting. Yeah. And I kind of, they assumed that I, I would know what it was talking about, but it was a little bit of a, a new field in a way for me because it was a mixture of what's called Marcion's Gospel, that is uh, the heretic Marcion, first, second century heretic, had a, um, he, had a uh, he had a gospel that looks a lot like our gospel of Luke. Mm-hmm. And um, the people that were writing against him uh, were saying his, it's not, it's, it was a shorter version of Luke, it was a heretical gospel, this sort of thing. So I've written on that area quite a bit, but what this author had done was he combined that with um, the origins of the three synoptic gospels, that's Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in that combination, um, there's a lot of theories. I, I'm somewhat familiar, but I, I, I wouldn't have thought of myself as an expert. And so that kind of jammed up the my finishing the review because I had to read a lot of outside material to really understand and so I can make an, a case for it. Um, so I, I, it took me a year. It took me a, a year to finish the review because just working on it here and there and could never really kill it. <laughs> it was always, you know, there's one more thing and I've got to address this thing. So today, today I sent it, which was exciting. And I had a few goals um, before school really gets going this year and then and, and into the school year, writing goals. Another one is um, I've 
because of this Marcion studies, partially I, I've been working on a book, which are the sayings of Jesus, categorized by audience, who he talked to and when. Writing that book helped me a lot uh, finishing, to finish the review. Um, the book isn't quite done, but I got it far enough along that I felt like I need a little bit of space from it now. So what I ended up doing was started um, a series of articles, and um, those are what I guess uh, we'll be talking about uh, throughout this episode. A little palate cleanser, maybe? That's exactly <laughs> it. I needed okay. some distance. Yes, I needed some distance. Um, and, and from both things, coming back, I've, I've noticed that, that coming back to writing, even if you don't think that it's good, a lot of times it's a lot better when you come back to it than it seemed in the moment. And it's interesting because sometimes I feel really inspired to write and I feel like everything's coming out sounding good. Other times I feel really dry and it just feels painful. And I'm like, this is horrible. But I've learned to save that material because often with enough distance, I can't tell what I wrote when. So uh, I've been, I'm saving it and working on these. Wow, that's the skills in action right there. So where would a review like that appear? Where where does that end up being made available? So this is on um, a website. I forget what it's exactly called, but if anyone wants to find it, if you just put my last name, Almanzar, if you Google Almanzar and uh, Marcian or Almanzar and Galatians, I've written on Galatians, a few things like that, it should come up. But it's a, it's a, um, I've been writing reviews for them for years because they send me free books to do it. And, and these books are always the library, really expensive, like scholarly books that are that I wouldn't ever just buy these books. I would get them from a library. But here I'm building a library by agreeing to do it. And um, they're based out of Europe. So I met them when I was in Germany. And they're, they're I think in Belgium is where most of the scholars are. And the book uh, was sent from Peter's publishing in Belgium to my house with an agreement I'd have it done in three months <laughs> instead of 50. <laughs> oh, it's all in, all in good time. So our listeners are probably accustomed to hearing you as one of our co-hosts from time to time and seeing you, your name as a, as a Latin instructor here for Colby in the online school or working with public relations. And they might not be familiar with your scholarly background. You wanna give us a, tell us about your scholarly side that, for those who aren't just familiar with that. Yeah, sure. I. I, I think that's that's very true. I think I'm thought of primarily as a teacher of Latin, and um, that's how most people would would know me is through my classes with with uh, students, a hundred students every year or whatever it is. And um, I I know that my students are aware of what of my research interests, and I really I really love researching and writing. That's like my favorite thing, and it's almost like I do everything else so that I can have the opportunity to do that. I'm really blessed at Colby because they're really supportive of my work um, and, and trying to sort of develop as a scholar at Colby. It's, it's an awesome opportunity because we see the state of higher academics um, currently. Um, I'm blessed that I, I also teach at Magdalen College so I can use an EDU email address, which is always nice when I'm sending it publications and things. But um, yeah, I, I, I guess, so the series that I'm working on now is, is things I would tell my students. And um, that comes from a lot of times in class, uh, I, 
I come across ideas and I just want to go further and further into them. Whereas the students want to finish the lesson and keep moving along with Latin. And I start going off on tangents in, with Greek, how it relates to Greek or a German word for something. I'm also interested in the history of research. And I, I, I'm trying to sort of find my place in that, the history of research. Hmm. When I was writing my dissertation in Germany, I got to work with uh, Gerd Ludemann, who was He's, he's one of the most known, notable, and maybe controversial uh, Protestant theologians and, and New Testament writers in, in the 20th century and, and, early, and into the 21st century. But we were very close, very, very close. And I, I was telling someone the other day about um, his recommendation letter that he's, I happened to, to get. Um, he sent it to me also along with places I was applying when I first got out of out of grad school. And um, <clears throat> in that, he talked about how we had developed a, a scholarly father-son relationship. Hmm. And I thought that was so nice because I felt it, but I, I didn't, uh, I never said it. We never said that. And like me, he had, well, I have a son, but he had four daughters. And um, I think he really poured himself into me. And I feel a responsibility even though I totally disagree with him on some of his positions, um, we are the way he did things, the way he taught one to write and to research, and he just spent the last years of his life investing all of that in me. And I feel a responsibility to, to continue it partially for him. So with all this stuff going on, how do you, under what conditions do you like to write when you have that option? I realize you probably don't always have the ideal conditions, but what are your ideal conditions for writing? So, I, yeah, for, for me, it's, I, early in the morning, I like to write early and, and just get it done like a craftsman more than um, more than just waiting to be inspired and write some poetry or something. I, okay. I feel better if I sit down early, get the work done and then move on to something else. So in the school year, I can only put a few hours into that. So I don't really read in the morning or I try not to. I try to do my reading later in the day and, and just think about it. And, and then the next morning I, I can write and I kind of have a clear head. I, I, I do a lot of drafts, so it takes me a long time to, to get something to where I feel like it's good. But those early mornings get it all out on the page and then it's like later a Saturday afternoon or something, I'll, I'll go back and start reading it and, and working through it. But yeah, those are the conditions. And I, I talked to a friend and this is sort of validating what I was doing with these articles. He said he also teaches high school. He has a PhD. It's we're almost in the same situation. And he was saying that when he talks to his students, a lot of times when he's done after a good conversation, he'll go back and write up what they talked about and turn it into a little article that he has on his website. And um, that's a little bit of what I'm doing. It's, it's more with these articles that I'm doing here. It's more if I had the chance to, to take my students on a long excursion into the meaning of, of phrases or words that we're looking at in Latin, this is what I would do. I'd want them to know this particular thing. And I'm sure if some of my students are listening and they 
they read this, they're going to say, um, yeah, you actually do that all the time. <laughs> you don't, it's not a wood. It's what you actually do <laughs> with your students. So I, I know I do that. I, I try to stick to uh, what I'm teaching, which is Latin. <laughs> so you've started working on these articles. You've got a few in the works, right? And you do you have a number in mind? I have three, um, three really in mind right now. And when I'm done with them, I will we'll make a decision, I guess. I mean, my, my wife, having read the first two, and then I've told her about the third one, she was like, well, you should just keep going and, and, and make a new book out of these. But they're, they may be a little too short. I, I've, I see them as like little treats if somebody's interested. Even if you don't know Latin, a lot of them are based on Latin because it's, they're coming up from things that I've said in class. A lot of them are quotes that have stood out to me um, sometimes from really obscure sources. So like the the first one that, that I've written, it's just about a really strange quote that's written um, in one of my books, one of my Colby textbooks, Henley Latin year three, we're reading Cicero. And there's a Latin word, simulo, which means to pretend something, like I simulate this thing. And I found in a German, in an old German book, and it's a little more common, you can find it in English grammars, especially older ones, but they have an interesting saying. Um, so in Latin, it's que non sunt simulo, que sunt ea dissimulantur, which means I pretend the things which are not, the things that are, they are hidden. So I'm sure I just wrote that when we came across the word simulo. It's an adage that's trying to teach you how to remember the difference between simulo and dissimulo. Like if something to hide something or to pretend something. But it's really profound to me. So I, um, I wrote this whole article based on that quote, um, which I've cited in other publications in a chapter that I published in a book called Rene Girard, Theology and Pop Culture. I also cited this quote and explained it a little bit more there, but here I wanted to take somewhat of a different angle on it and ended up writing this um, article called The Hidden Origins of Victim Culture. So out of the things that we are pretending and the things that are hidden, I sort of developed this idea that works itself out into explaining like where we are now in, in with this idea of you want to be the victim or we're always standing up for victims and, and things like that. So what I hope is that when readers, um, that no one will judge it just from the explanation that I'm giving here, but that they'll actually look at it and, and see, because I think, I think it would be a little bit surprising based on what you might assume by the title. Mm -hmm. It's definitely very thought provoking and timely. So I, I, think that the other thing is, is it gives people access to understanding a little bit of Latin or to, even if you haven't taken a Latin class, I think it's really fun to, for people who have an interest or even a talent in languages, but haven't had the time to really sit down and learn Latin like their kids have, they may be able to read some of these, this series. I think it'll all be based out of Latin words, Latin phrases, and you can you can memorize them or get your hands around them a little bit and and know something kind of deeper about some of these latin words that i'm talking about and, and i would say about the second one the title is the enemy next door the current title is but um just as a, a little preview what what it involves is that 
there are two words for enemy in Latin, also in Greek, but uh, we only have really one. I mean, there are other synonyms sort of in English, but we always translate these two Latin words, inimicus and hostis, as enemy when we translate. And so the whole time Julius Caesar in, in the in second year Latin and even in first year Latin at Colby, we're reading a lot about Caesar and the students get fed up with uh, all that it's all about Caesar killed the Gauls, Caesar destroyed the Gauls, like there's all the different ways of yeah. killing in Latin. But then they're, they're always using the word hostis, the, the enemy. And um, this word is, is fascinating because what it, what it is, is it, it means a foreign enemy. It's somebody who is not like you at all, someone who can t be totally dehumanized in their world. Um, it's the, the monsters, the, the, the orcs in fairy tales, the whatever. The, these are the host days. Whereas in Caesar's day, the barbarians played that role. I mean, anyone who is not Roman played that role. And so if you had an enemy within the empire, no matter how much you hated them, it was an inimicus, which is just the opposite of an amicus, which is Spanish amigo. So it's like somebody who's your personal rival, but they are like you in a way. Um, you can't dehumanize them because you, you're from the same, the same nature, the same. Everything is, is, is equal between the two of you as much as you might hate this person. So there's more to it than that, but I'll, I'll stick to that part of it and say, so then you ask yourself, who did Jesus tell us to pray for when he says to pray for your enemies? Is it the foreign enemies who you could dehumanize, who you could say, you know, they, they are nothing like us. We, they're worthy of death. Um, and or is it um, or is it just your personal rivals? And your, your thought may be, and mine was before I looked it up, and it's the same in Greek with the two Greek words, but your thought might be that he's going to say, to love your foreign enemies and pray for them, but he doesn't. He says, love your personal rivals, the ones who are your inimicos, the ones who are the same as you. And so that seems to be a little, you know, it's surprising. It was surprising to me, but I think I know why. And, and I talk about it more in the article and I, I hope I can explain it well in the article, but I think I know why. And it goes back to the parable of the Good Samaritan because the question is asked to Jesus by a scribe, an expert in the law, uh, who is my neighbor? And if we do the same and say, who is my enemy? You know, it's sort of the same thing. But the way that Jesus answers him is he tells him the parable. And what the parable illustrates is that everyone is your neighbor. There, there are no more foreigners in a way. There are no more people who can be turned into this hostis, the hostile one that's worthy of death. And since that is the case, then um, all that's left are inimicus, inimici. Like we, we don't have the, we don't have the option of saying pray for or love our enemies if there are no more foreign enemies in that way. Everyone is, is humanized even even then, and I think that would have been amazing for them to hear that and it was just a profound message that had never been there before. Absolutely. I was wondering if hostile was related to hostis, yeah. Hostile is, and there's much more to it. I mean, hostile is related. Um, an obvious one is the host, at the, the Eucharistic host, 
that's hostia hostia which is a victim so it's a victim who is maybe someone from inside the community but but can be made into almost a hostile person by becoming the hostia the victim scapegoat the scapegoat exactly and if you go far enough back and you look in sanskrit and you look in old german the the word is there um but the word in those languages it can either mean the host at a dinner party mm-hmm. or it can mean a guest at a dinner party and there's obvious connection to cannibalism in every instance in the ancient world in the very pre it's like pre-written history world that's fascinating when you're talking about hosts i guess one of the things that i was wondering like i guess i only have a superficial knowledge of latin just a couple of years when i was in at a liberal arts school but when i think about like an an army that we're fighting against as a country even um where you think okay well they're this enemy that we have to fight so i guess as christians not hate but we have to fight we have to defeat them which seems like more of the hostess sort of thing there's not that sort of but but yet probably i'm guessing we'd be called as christians not to have that other form of of enemy yeah thinking about whether world war ii our American troops against some of the German troops where they're just people fighting for their country. They're not, they're not the ones in the concentration camps um, putting to death the Jews or whatever. But I'm not sure if that fits in with those differences in the terms or not. I, I think it does fit in because, because what, the, what has the internet done more than it's connected us with, with like-minded people around the world? Um, so that's why the title is The Enemy Next Door, because if you're World War II, you're just relying on news reports coming in through the newspapers, but you're not seeing somebody there showing somebody with their, their legs blown off or like little kids that are now homeless and parentless. Because So maybe in Vietnam is when we started seeing more images like that, that sort of humanized humanized people. And concurrently with Vietnam started... Um, kind of immigration into the U.S. that didn't involve Europe anymore. It switched to countries uh, um, that Asian countries and, and South American countries and things like that. But especially with Asian and Middle Eastern countries coming in, there are people that had a, they were from a different culture. They have a different religion. Um, not that everyone from Europe is the same culture or, or has the same religion, but but bringing people in like this um, at the same time as we're humanizing them by showing the images of what's going on in these parts of the world, it made it impossible to look at them as, as hosties, as people that could just be destroyed. It made it impossible. But I, I will say there was a, there was a time, um, and I talk about this a little bit in the article, during the early in COVID when uh, before masks were required in a, in one of the stores here by here where I live by, um, I went in there without a mask. There was no requirement for it. Half the people had them, half the people didn't. And there was this old lady who got right in my face, angry, angry at me and calling me a killer. I don't I don't care about other people. All these kind of things. And when I left, I I was reflecting on that uh, the fact that she looks from what I could see through her mask, is exactly like my neighbors, who I would help. I would help my neighbors uh, if they needed something. I would, 
she was old enough, I might have offered to help her get her groceries to, to her car or something like that. But she looked at me as though I were a hostess and, and uh, that we were different. We were different based on, on the fact that I wasn't wearing a mask. And that's when I really started thinking about this because she would, I'm sure, in any country around the world, identify with somebody based on, along political lines that were similar and say, this person is my neighbor, but this man with his daughter that came into the store who probably lives in the same neighborhood as me is my hostess. And uh, that's, that's why the title of that article is The Enemy Next Door, because I think with globalization and with the rise of the internet and other factors as well, but that combination is eliminated or uh, as we were destroying the ability to have a hostess across the world, we created the ability to have one across the street. Wow. It's really, it's really bizarre. I mean, I, I guess it's human nature, but you, some of what you're saying reminds me of the Civil War as a as a great example because um, I, I'm a big fan of of Ulysses S. Grant, and he'd have a victorious battle, or there'd be a, a surrender, and there'd be a temptation of his men to like rejoice like we we have the victory and this sentiment was always something like these are americans these are brothers you know this is this is a horrible thing that i mean yes we we had to fight this fight we, we need to save the union is what he was was striving to do but but even there at the time you know so you had people like grant who at least at times was very much aware of their even the people that we're shooting at right now are not the hosties they're, they're the there are brothers we just have to do the our duty to our country demands this of us but as soon as the defeat was you know declared he was right back to these are our brothers again and so it's interesting because even though there was the turmoil that was one of the first wars that well the first war we fought where there was photography so there were photos at least going back seeing the the dead and the wounded and and all of these things so you'd think that after 150, 160 years, we would have uh, be better about this. But I guess it's human nature that we, yeah, it's easier to make somebody that maskless person that you can group with everybody else and not tr not think of them as a an individual or as a brother, right? So, yeah, that, I think that's a great point, especially with the Civil War, because that's a, that's case in point right there. People within the same national borders that have divided and and um it's interesting that grant had that perspective um almost feeling terrible for it because you contrast that with with julius caesar he he was bragging bragging putting it in in um you know third person but about himself third person singular saying he julius caesar destroyed the enemy we i so essentially saying i killed 20,000 in this battle. He wants it all, like the glory of it, everything for himself. It's the opposite of how generals today would talk, but even uh, apparently in, in the Civil War, maybe there was a weakening uh, of taking it upon yourself like that. Generals today would say, uh, our men did a great job out there. We had to do, we, we did what we had to do. He'd never say, I, <laughs> I, I killed all these people. And you know, Caesar had, they estimate he killed at least a million and enslaved at least a million more. And he, if he's exaggerating that those numbers, it's 
for his own glory anyway, a glory that doesn't happen now. Imagine Grant saying, I killed a million of the Southern boys or whatever, and, uh, and, and I enslaved a million of their wives or something. They would never do that. My sister Hope tells a story from her Colby High School days of casting aside a book, probably during the Roman year, she thinks, but though possibly the Greek, and, and refusing to study for the rest of the day. <laughs> um, in that moment, reading about brutality and conquerors for, again, another day, she, she said that she thought a classical education served only to desensitize students to pain and suffering, and she announced that she would have no part in such a cruel project. She uh, told me the story with great relish and wished she could be here herself to tell it, but she <laughs> she was she wanted to share it with you guys. So our mom let her sulk for the rest of the day, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, brought the books back the next day, uh, reminding Hope that they were in the pre-Christian era of the curriculum and things would change, and which they did. And Hope now says that her understanding developed as the weeks and years went on, and and. She later graduated from Colby with an ever-deepening reverence and compassion for humanity, both its sufferings and its successes. So she yeah. wants to know, did High School Hope have the point? And if so, how did the progression of the Colby curriculum and a classical education in general rehabilitate her perspective? I, I love I love that story. And and I, I love the question because that that's what I, on other podcasts where I've appeared, especially the ones where Dr. Don Prudlow or Everett Byarski are, are there, that that's something that that um, that is apparent to me in, in a different way, because I got interested in Latin and Greek and everything to do research in New Testament and early Christian studies. Typically, if somebody has my job as a classical uh, classics teacher, classical language teacher, it's because they love the, the languages of, of Seneca, of Cicero, of, you know, the writers, pre-Christian writers, they, they love it. And I have sort of gotten to where I, I see a huge distinction after the cross, after Pentecost, a huge distinction between humans before and after. And, and part of it is this victim stuff that, that is in the first um, article, in the first article, I contrast two works of art. One of them is the Dying Gaul. You can look it up if you're listening to this. The Dying Gaul statue, which shows a man that's about to die, a young, muscular man, obviously a Gaul. He's been wounded in some campaign, and he's dying. And it was made to celebrate. We conquered the Gauls, and look how strong they were. We conquered them. There's no idea of uh, trying to be sympathetic towards this man. Uh, it was it was all for glory and there's tons of artwork from from the ancient world that's like that and i contrasted that with the crucified christ by velasquez it, that's in the um that's in the prado museum in madrid and this painting is it has no narrative scene around jesus it's just against a black background that that's uh, just showing christ crucified and uh, the reason i contrasted those two was to show that we could never make a dying goal statue, no matter what human ethnicity we put on there. Now, maybe an individual, we could never say the dying, um, the dying Afghani statue and people celebrate it. No one would. No one would celebrate that. We, if maybe an individual, if we did a dying um, 
bin Laden statue, like one person, but not because of their ethnicity or something like that. And I wonder, that's interesting that Hope sensed that in reading the pre-Christian works uh, that there was, that, that it was, uh, it was there's a lot of cruelty there's there isn't sympathy in the way that we think of it people could be easily uh enslaved and 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 our heroes are rejoicing about it um something changed at pentecost and and um with the teachings of jesus that distinction i think is is really important and i'm glad that she she found it and and maybe maybe that's what's great um ellen finnegan at the at the colby graduation this year talked about how the, sort of the same thing. There is nothing new under under the sun. It says in Proverbs, Old Testament writing, there's nothing new under the sun. So students read in this progression. And so they're reading the Greeks, then they're reading the Romans. And when they get to the Christian period, all of a sudden they can distinguish, wait, this is new. This is a new thing. And they realize that there is something new under the sun now, like in the in the in the Christian period. So I think it's really important for students to do those two years. Um, I I don't justify the pagans as easily as others, and maybe maybe I should be called to task for that. You know, I I'm more like, you know, I I'm I'm much more focused on the early centuries of Christianity. I think it's to me it's it there there's a vastness there that hasn't even been tapped. Everybody gets it falls in love with Ovid or Catullus or somebody and they, and they don't read some of these um, Christian writers who, who were explaining new things in a new way. And that to me, that's what's most fascinating. So you'll have to get somebody um, like, like Dr. Prudlow on here that can really draw the connection better than, than I can because I'm, because I'm so biased. I, I look at the distinction between the two and uh, I'm interested that hope, felt that as a young high schooler. Well, I'm sure she would far prefer to be discussing it with you herself than, than having me share the story with, but those are her words, by the way, just got to say. Great. Just got to say, and, and I, maybe that's fodder for your future writings, but I have to ask you though, you've mentioned before, I'm going to ask you to explain to us, how come Seneca gets to be your favorite pagan? How did he merit that? Yeah, that <laughs> that one, it's it is a little, you know, it'd be easier if I didn't have uh, didn't have a guilty pleasure like uh, the letters of Seneca. <laughs> okay. But I mean, I can't I can justify it in certain ways. One is that um, Jerome, Jerome writing centuries after Seneca was alive, he called him Seneca Noster, which means our Seneca. He thought he was very close, uh, as he did other other pagans, but but he thought Seneca was very close, and um, the, even more than that. And and everyone writes this off, but I'm not so sure that it's that it's true because, or that it, that it should be written off. Um, there's a situation in the Book of Acts. You can look it up where Paul is on trial and he is going to be flogged by the the Jews who are there accusing him. And instead, the tables are turned, he's let go, and, and the Jews are, are punished instead. And the person um, that was in charge of that, the, mag the Roman magistrate, was Seneca's little brother. So he, he in, in its historical fact, born in Cordoba, both of them, um, and then he was this, this magistrate who happened upon the Apostle Paul. So 
there are a lot of illusions in Seneca's writings that I don't think people have drawn out enough to, to show their similarity to Paul. But the awesome thing, and I show this to my students a lot, Seneca will say something like, show me the man who knows that he dies daily. And that St. Paul says exactly, I die daily. So, uh, you know, there, there are illusions. Maybe it was just the zeitgeist of the time that they were just, you know, they were, uh, they were in, swimming in the same waters. Those were questions or sayings that people had. But the one that is totally discounted that I think is profound is there are letters between Seneca and St. Paul. Everyone says they're spurious now, but for centuries they were taken, they were taken serious. Um, the French took them the most serious, and that ended sort of at the end of the 1800s when this man uh, from England, J.B. Lightfoot is his name. So scholars in New Testament stuff may know the name J.B. Lightfoot. Um, I'll put it bluntly, everything that I've ever looked into deeply that J.B. Lightfoot has said has been wrong. And yet he's the one who's cited all the time. He's like the expert. He's the, he's the one, no, according to Lightfoot, this, and that becomes dogma. But I mean, during my dissertation, there were several times where I, I looked deeply and, and since my dissertation. So I don't trust him. I don't trust him. And maybe it's so far-fetched, St. Paul writing in Latin to Seneca. Maybe it's too far-fetched, but I'm not convinced that that shouldn't be looked at more. In fact, I'd like to, I'd like to do it myself someday, but that also, and it doesn't mean Seneca was a Christian by any means, but he was very interested in St. Paul. Why wouldn't he be? His brother would have told him about him. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's more there than, than maybe there's more reason why, uh, they, why Jerome could call him Seneca Noster than we give credit for. Okay. Well, I'll take that. That's a good, that's a good reason for <laughs> how he earned that. I'll take that. That works. Thank you. <laughs> so for the articles yet to come, you've got one written, you've got another one in the works, you've got another one in mind. Is it a good analogy to say they're almost sort of in a way like a commonplace book, like you've accumulated some of these quotes in a way that you want to hang on to and think more deeply about and come back to and develop yeah, yeah, it, it, that's exactly what it is. I like the little hook of things I would tell my students. Um, I think it yeah. makes it like kind of interesting. It gives me a, a way to go more deeply. But it's a little bit like my friend who who told me that that after a conversation with a student, he'll go and write write a little post about it. Sort of. Um, it's a little bit like that. But these are things that have been around with me for years. I don't think any of them are new. They're, they're more things that I think about a lot. And and um, I have lots of notes in my Latin books. Uh, that's why, I mean, they're, they're totally destroyed and beat up. And I mean, I've had them for years, but I keep the same ones because, because of these notes that I made to myself over the years. And when I get the chance, all, all my classes, I, this is why I don't use PowerPoints or anything in class, because I like them to be new. Each year, they're new with the, with the students that I have that year. I go at a different pace. I mean, we always end where we're supposed to end, but we, we sometimes go faster or slower. And I try to work in some of these things where I can. I, I mean, I am not a classicist, although I teach the languages. I'm much more interested in um 
in in these other things, the the historical components and going really deep. And um, that's I'd like students to be also. Do you ever get students who ask you questions during your class that just suddenly sets off something that you're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that or I hadn't really thought about the explanation for that when it comes to languages or is it have you pretty much seen it all by now? Yeah, it's funny you should ask. I was thinking about this. There's nothing as in terms of the grammar. There's nothing now. I mean, I've I've seen everything and heard everything lots of times. My first years of teaching, I was terrified of that because it was constantly, oh, I'll have to look that up for you and I'll, I'll get back to you. And um, so I didn't know off the top of my head a lot. I knew where to find answers, but I didn't know where to find them. But now, I've done it so long and and so many students i i i have no idea how many students but it's in the thousands for sure um that there's i think i've heard everything linguistically that i'll be amazed i should i should offer a badge if someone can ask a, a question um that i haven't heard before or that i don't have the answer to as far as the grammar um where students can stump me and where their way they're way better than me is uh with like greek mythology especially greek and roman mythology they they because they've read they've read it all in those years so when we come to it usually in the fourth year of latin when we're reading virgil i i, I have to totally rely on them and so if they ask me a question about about one of the figures in in the poem i'm like you guys know i don't know ask ask your classmates they know everything about it <laughs> Well, that would be a fun challenge for the students with the, their Dr. A quotes that they like to collect and share with each other. So you have your quotes for future articles in mind already. They, they're marinating, to borrow your word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, um, I, I think so. So the, the one, so the, the one for the second article is, is what I was saying about, about the enemies, the two different enemies. But there, there's a little more to it. I go into a few other words that are related. But especially it becomes about hostis and hostia and host and hostile and all that. Um, the next one, what I think I'm going to do, I've, I've, for several students who've graduated, if I've sent them a card or something to congratulate them, something that I really like, it's, it's also from Seneca Letter 9. And Letter 9 is about friendship. Seneca Book 1, Letter 9 to Lucilius, it's about friendship. And they usually don't print it in English. I, in fact, I haven't seen it in English in the... Not exactly why they don't print that one in English. Usually, if you get the letters, uh, maybe there's a complete letters, but if you get like the penguin version that I have or something, they don't have letter nine. In letter nine, there's this beautiful part where he's talking about an artist. And um, he says, he just says it, like this little quote about it's better to be painting than to have painted. For the artist, it's better to be painting than to have painted. Um, and he follows that up with saying, youth is beautiful, but infancy is sweeter. And I really like that quote because it reminds me of, of uh, when I was uh, sort of coming to the end of my dissertation with my professor in Germany. Um, I, wrote him a, I wrote him an email where I, I was kind of, explaining i wish we were back in the thick of things you know and not not that the work has has now been done and i think of that a little bit also with my 
my students when they've graduated and gone on to things, it's, it's sort of the same, you know, it's like their infancy into this world of, even if they go on to other things and we miss the times you, when you're, when, when you're working on something, if you're an artist and you're working on something like the, the sculptor of the dying goal or whoever, when they're working on it, that's the, that's the real part. Um, when it's finished, it, it, it's gone, you know, and when you're working with people in this teacher student relationship, building them into something else. Um, I love that. I love that. Um, infancy is sweeter part. So I think the article will revolve around that somewhat. I've, I've been working out a few things, but, but I think that that's probably going to be the focus. I'm looking forward to that one too. I think it, it calls to mind for me, the, the gift of the present moment and like working on, on things together, such as this podcast, but, and then when it's done, it it's there for us to go back and listen to. It's a different experience though, of, of working on it together in the moment. Yeah. Yes. But the, how, sure. the, how the connection continues that that's, that's important too. Yeah. Yeah. So these articles are forthcoming. We're going to have to keep our listeners posted on, on where they can enjoy them for themselves. We will keep listeners posted on that. Let me say that. Um, I'm thinking about some of your other writing projects, some of which I've had the pleasure of reading, such as the book published by Colby earlier this year that we talked about on episode 79, Doors to Your Memories, and um, your memoir that you recounted many stories from your youth and, and experience as a homeschooled student. I've heard you mention your book about Rene Girard a few times, but I haven't, I'm not as familiar with that one. Do you want to say a few words about that one? Sure. Yeah, that was, um, so I contributed a chapter um, and I, I basically did the, the origins, the divine origins of the modern plot twist. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was called Those Who Have Eyes to See the Divine Origins of the Modern Plot Twist. And I describe Christianity as uh, coming into the world and providing a plot twist that explains everything else. So when, uh, when, when the plot twist hits, everything makes sense in the movie in a different way. And, and you can only, you can never restore the old plot, the false narrative. It can never come back once it's destroyed. So it's in general, that's how I do it. And I use three movies from the early two thousands, which really dates when I uh, dropped out of uh, pop culture in the U S and moved <laughs> to Germany. Everyone else that contributed to it, their stuff is, is like new, like TV shows I've never seen or, or mm -hmm. like, I, I don't even know. I haven't read the other chapters of it, to be <laughs> honest. But that book is actually more affordable now. It was, it was really expensive. I think it's down. It might be below $30 on Amazon. No, uh, they've sold enough that they dropped the price. So it's Rene Girard, Theology and Pop Culture. Um, and then I have, yeah, my memoir, which you can get through Colby Academy. It's, it's supposed to be out everywhere on Amazon and everything soon, hopefully. Oh, okay. And then uh, my dissertation you'll find, I'm sure, on Amazon, but no need to buy it. <laughs> it's a very expensive book, and I think it would be boring to, to most people unless you're like a real expert in, in, in uh, New Testament studies. And um, then I'm working on this, this book about Jesus that I told the 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 words of Jesus, and I'm chomping at the bit to start a book right after that, that I was inspired by it, which is, um, which is about the, the resurrection of Lazarus. So, um, yeah, I don't know, the whole book will be about that. I might incorporate some of the other 
very uh, usually difficult um, miracles of Jesus in in the Gospels, but but for sure the resurrection of La- I want to call it Lazarus come forth and find enough info to put a whole book together on it. Wow. Okay. I look forward to that too. So as we're coming to the end of our time together, do you have anything that you would tell your beginning Latin students or their parents? Some of these, among the things you would tell your students, what would you tell to your beginning Latin students? Yeah, I would, t- I would tell them, welcome to the adventure. I mean, it becomes an adventure to a, to a new world if you, if you stick with it, for sure. I, I remember in Germany, I had a professor who laughed when he was reading the back of the Memoria Press, uh, like first form Latin or something. This is a man of brilliant German, 20 languages, had gone to Latin school growing up. And um, he was laughing. So you Americans, you look at everything as an adventure. He thought it was funny that we were describing Latin as an adventure. I would rather just own it and say, yeah, it is. And we're learning it and you're not. I mean, there are hardly any Germans learning it anymore. So, so I would say welcome to the adventure and stick with it. I mean, it, it's, it starts off fun. It gets hard. Um, then it gets fun again. And so it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a lesson in perseverance. You stay with it through the ups and downs. And before you know it, you're reading Latin. Okay. Okay. I would say that, you know, with what you've already been talking about here and especially having had the benefit of having my, hearing my wife talk about Latin and being at a table when you and her were talking about Latin, that it's it becomes so clear not to think of it as just like somebody telling you the rules, like just memorize all of these things and just learn it. Like question why why is they using why or are they using hosties here and and these other words here or why are these endings weird for some of these words even what you know what happened because I mean English obviously we're in the thick of it and you know, we're, we have a, just a fraction of the number of words in circulation that were in use that are found in Shakespeare. But already there are so many things in English that you just don't even question anymore when somebody says, I'm good, or, or uh, all of, it's like, well, okay, yes, you're good, but <laughs> I was asking um, how you were doing, how you were feeling. That's, it's not the same, but now it's perfectly fine. I mean, I was criticized, you know, there, there would be criticisms, but those just kind of, but Latin's not changing now. It's you can it's you can go back and it seems to me you can go back and really look at how the people were thinking and how things evolved as a language and how. But now it's a it's it's a picture, not trying to keep up with all of the the new terms and such. Yes, that that's a great way to put it, and not a lot of people think of that. But yeah, it's it's an it's 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 precise because you know what that word meant then. And it, it, and it's not like if you say I'm good to today and you went back 150 years ago, it wouldn't make sense if you say that to somebody. Maybe. Um, yeah. Or even, yeah. Yeah. I think that Latin is that, that makes it very valuable. There, there, there are a lot of awesome quotes and, and, and stuff about Latin and why to learn Latin. Um, yeah, I agree with with um, the people that, you know, I agree with all the all the apologies for why we should study Latin. Um, but I th- and, and what I think even more is it is to make it like personal and make it your own. 
Um, so I, I might even remind that to students or, or advise that to beginning students is, is even though you're coming, you will never, you will never conquer Latin, but you can be conquered by Latin. That's all that can happen, but it becomes your own then. And it's not just to fulfill the expectations. Uh, um, it's for your own purposes. Not everyone is learning Latin, obviously, like me. To, re, to, to be an expert in Julius Caesar or Livy or whoever, you know, I'm, there's lots of reasons to learn Latin. In fact, they say that there's an entire lost continent of Latin that nobody reads in the, in the town halls across Europe. And um, no one can read them. Hardly anyone can read them now. And all we read is like just a tiny, tiny percentage, not even 1% of all the Latin that is out there is what we read when we read the classics. Wow. It reminds me of that conversation you and I had very early on in our reload, our relaunched Kobe Caster, and it was episode seven where you were talking about some of these things as well, study, learning Latin, and uh, you likened it to learning to play the piano and some of the ups and downs of that. So if that is uh, relatable to many listeners who have working on that, have had, been through that, are going through that, and that, but that's very encouraging. Well, I've only had two years of, of Latin myself, but for me, that was more influential in, for me, understanding grammar and how I speak in English than any other, any other thing. So w when I do this ability battery test that, that I help people with, with when they're trying to find their abilities, they throw a skill in there, as I've mentioned this before in the podcast, of vocabulary. And it's because the person who developed the t test said that in any field, your vocabulary, your ability to use the language and think clearly is the greatest indicator of success. So um, even if you're not thinking of going on to read Seneca or these other people for a career, just it's universally true that that studying Latin will improve your ability to communicate, to think, which will inevitably result in greater success in whatever you're doing. So it's, uh, it's worthwhile. I, I I, yesterday I was at a store. I was in line yesterday after mass. We were, we were I was in a store. This lady, um, I heard her say to her daughter, they were looking at, at those cards that are kind of like cheat sheet cards for for anything, for math, for languages. Okay. And um, she said, she said, um, look for the Latin one. And her daughter was looked like early, like 13, 14 years old. And I said, oh, are you learning Latin? And they said, yes, she, she's starting it this year. And and I'm like with Colby Academy, but no, it was uh, <laughs> some other way they're doing it. But um, it was interesting because they they were so excited about this. Then the man in front of me chimed in, and he said, "Latin was the was how I got through uh, medical school." And um, he said, "I took it when I was starting in sixth grade. I hated it, but I was so grateful for it when I was in medical school." And I told her, "Well, not everyone hates it, like this guy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> some people like it." But um, he and um, it was, and and I I said, "Latin is is like the piano of languages. So if you learn Latin, you it's it's much easier to learn other languages um, that are based on the same scale or whatever." And uh, he loved it. He he was like, I've never heard that before. I'm I'm gonna steal that. The the medical doctor said that. But I just <laughs> thought it was interesting that it's growing so much that I almost never go into the store. I'm always waiting in the car. But my I went in this time and happened to hear a conversation about Latin with a young girl interested in learning it. Um, 
so it's it's on the rise i think people see the value in it and it's it's just growing and growing and i think it's a great thing well your students this year are certainly fortunate to be starting their adventure with you helping them is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about no i really appreciate um i really appreciate coming on here and, and sort of focusing on these on these articles and things it's i mean it, it's an opportunity for me to write them and then to also talk about them and it is it's all the stuff that uh that i try to do while trying to not waste my students time in class too much you know i feel sometimes i feel like i'm just blogging in class and they're just forced to uh go along on the ride you know but but they learn latin i mean i will say that i've got if anyone needs proof i've got like a hundred students that have become excellent latinists that can uh you know, perfect scores on the national latin exam and things so so in spite of uh, what i try to do to them they learn latin so they're getting bonus material that's yes what that's what i that's what i like i i did hear a student once say this isn't just Latin class, it's theology, it's history and naming a bunch of things. And, and she said, my mom said this. So that was a little bit of validation. Yep. Well deserved. Okay, Jordan and Stephen, thank you for visiting with me. This is, these are always fun conversations. I've been looking forward to this and it's been, did not disappoint. It's been a great conversation. Thanks guys very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Subscribe to the ColbyCast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.